Good afternoon. It's um It's been a little while since I've been uh, been able to to come and uh offer a word here so I'm 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 encouraged, I'm excited about what the Lord is um is sharing with myself and Again, before I even begin, um, just, uh, I guess, a few disclaimers before we kind of begin. Um, for those of you who are visitors here, welcome. Uh, and I think in many ways, because of our recent transitions that we're trying to make, we are trying to, um, again, step forward into what we hope um, for our church will be a brave new future. Um, a better future. And so I, I, to, today what I want to do is kind of speak into that. It sounds terrible. All right. Is that better? All right, cool. That's better. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to build a, better, build a better church. So I guess today um, and how, how we have been actually as elders been trying to teach the church of late has been kind of like, for those of you who, who are, I guess, not as involved in our church, it's like coming to the church and sermon-wise, it's like coming in and seeing the scaffolding around there because we're, 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 we're trying to construct something new. And as a result, uh, much of what I will say is really kind of talking to the heart of our church today to do so. But I believe as we are patient, um, there will be something there for you too. But again, for me, it's important that I speak to us as a, as a local body and encourage us in the work that the Lord is already doing. Having said that, what I'm teaching, of, teaching from today in 1 Corinthians 3 is, is not my way as, a, as an elder looking to you and saying, this is what you should do. This is... I guess a little bit more indirect to that, where I'm looking to the scriptures and saying, this is what we should do. This is what we should be about. This is what I believe the Lord has set for the agenda. So it's not about me saying this is what should be done. I believe it. this is what the Lord has encouraged us to say. And so it's been on my heart for a, for a little while now to kind of encourage us. We've, we have lots of, we've had Lots of teaching on ecclesiology. For those of us who don't know, ecclesiology is the study of the church. What is the church supposed to be? How does it look? Do we just go into a church and just sense how it feels and then to some extent it buys into that image that we believe a church should be? The, um, you know, the, the right songs were sung in the worship. The message kind of got me to the heart as opposed to not looking at the bigger picture of what do I do as a member of a church? What's my position in it? What, what should it look like, not just on a Sunday, but throughout the week? Because we are the church. And that's the title of my sermon today. You are that temple. And so it's been on my mind to kind of add my um, understanding of what the church is to that which I know has already been taught very well here. So having said that, um, I hope you will bear with me as I share what I believe is my heart and my desire for us to grow and mature and become 
um, the church of God that will endure into eternity. Amen? Okay. Um, let me read and then I will pray. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. And I will read um, from the ESV. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh, and while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid the foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thank you for your word today. We are thankful that uh, again, you, <laughs> in times past, you put it upon um, your apostle, your, your called out one. Um, one Paul of Tarsus, their Lord, to write to a church that was struggling to grow and grow in the grace that, they was, that was given to them. And, and in his wisdom, he spoke into their lives, their Lord Father, and not only into their lives, but into our lives as well, so that um, throughout the ages, the church 
has been able to have the counsel of one whom you have laid your hands upon in order to instruct how your church should flourish and how it should be established. And for this we are grateful because here we are with the text preserved for us today so that we may, may, we may live and we, know, we may not be in ignorance but have your word beside us. We're thankful today. And we are thankful there, Lord God, even as I say this for the church, Lord, that does not have your word today, wherever they may be, who are surviving, as it were, in ignorance. And yet, Lord, I pray for them also, that you will bring your revelation to them in due time, that they also will flourish and be able to become established as they move into eternity. Thank you, Father. Help me as a, as a, as one who is also called to be faithful in, 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 in speaking your word today. Help us as well, Lord God, as congregations to respond to you and such as such be transformed by your word. Thank you for your grace and for this work of your spirit and for the finished work of your son that makes this all possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um. I guess in my, my, if, I, if I was going to be completely honest, one of my desires was really kind of to teach the first four chapters, but obviously in, a, in one sitting that would be too much, and I wouldn't subject that to you. But I think that the meat of Paul's argument, the thing that I think really helps us is, there, is what's here in chapter three. But what I want to do is begin by, by the chapters that bracket this and kind of give you a bit of what Paul's argument is. And so, firstly, I turn to chapter 2. So what is he doing? What is he building up to? Well, in chapter 1, he is writing them, and, he, and he's kind of also, at the beginning, responding to them in chapter 1 and saying, I hear that there are divisions amongst you, and I want to speak into that. And obviously, the, the divisions are in numerous areas, but he starts with the, the, with the partisanship style of divisions that that partisan is like, oh, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and, you know, and I follow this particular teacher. And he wants to address that first. And in chapter 2, he outlines the problems with conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom cannot comprehend the things of God. He does this by pointing to Jesus who died on the cross. And as such, he is doing so to say, would anybody think that they could conquer the world by laying down their lives? And so to that extent, he has pointed to the chink in their armor where he says, the wisdom you're trying to use to comprehend the spiritual things cannot work the way that you think it works. You cannot defeat your enemies by allowing them to kill you. That's conventional wisdom. Paul then goes on to say there is always a gap between the spiritual understanding of the thing and the carnal understanding of it. We see this quite clearly in the teachings of Jesus, where, in a sense, he talks about something in a, very, in a parable sense, but then people run away thinking that it means something different or say they're confused, they have no understanding of how that relates to spiritual truths.
In fact, when they are told that they are ruling and reigning with Christ, they've run off with that, with their carnal mindset. And they've taken that <coughs> on face value. They haven't comprehended the now and the not yet of the kingdom that I'm looking to build is not yet fully established. But the carnal mind is running because this is what the Greeks were doing that, again, like we see much in the prosperity gospel now, is that I don't need my blessing in heaven. I need my blessing now. I need to get that now. What good is it to me in heaven? And so what you do is you take that carnal mindset of basically capitalism and say, how do I get it now? That's the carnal mind. That's the carnal mind trying to take something that has a spiritual reality to it and try to apply it in a way that obviously it doesn't fit. They are living the spiritual values of the new world with the old mindset. I can't help thinking, like, to get a picture of what the Corinthians are going through, right? You know, I, I, it's always good to illustrate. At the moment, um, Lion King is getting a lot of play in my house. Um, a lot of play. And there's a particular song that Simba sings where, you know, which, again, I just can't wait to be king. And there he is singing to um, Zazu the fact that when he is king, the world will not be the way. He will run the world. You know, he will say, everybody look left. And everybody look right. And everywhere I'm standing, I'm standing in the spotlight. It's going to be King Simba's finest day. I just can't wait to be king. And that's what they're doing. He's a, he is a child trying to understand an adult's responsibility. And when his father speaks to him, he's trying to remind him that you will look at being a king differently once you're there because it comes with responsibility. It's not about you always being in the spotlight, of you being a king's kid, of you being able to get what you want. He is telling you that you need to grow up in order to comprehend what it is to really be a king and what it is to rule and reign in Christ. Having said that, relating this to us now, it's what does it mean to be spiritually mature? And I hope that for anyone who has recently been saved or has been saved for a minute, this has always been their desire that I be mature, I be mature in Christ, that I will, I will, I will be able to look back and see that I am further down the road than I was, say, last year or the year before that. There is no escaping the need to be mature. 
And this is exactly where Paul picks up his argument in the next chapter, but we won't go there just yet. Let me make this next point. You cannot demand that everything related to the kingdom be simple. You cannot make that which is complex simple. You can't make something that is spiritual simple. The danger of demanding simplicity is that you will open yourself up for false teachers who are more than willing to tell you that the things that, you, that are spiritual can be carnally understood. In other words, you can just run with it on face value. That you can pick and carve certain scriptures that speak, to a spe speak in English to a specific phrase that you have a particular connection to, and you can run with that without trying to understand it in its context. There are plenty of people who are prepared to do that. And if you demand that the gospel be simple, then that's what you open yourself up for. Because you will look for people that will tell you what you want to hear. If you want simplicity, go through the complexity, and then when you get there, it will be simple. It's like trying to believe that uh, some bogus school sets up and, and in advert you says, you know, I can make you into a doctor in a year. We would never buy into it. But yet, why do we buy in to something simple? This has been the problem of the church right from the very beginning. The church has always had to fight the specter of rationalism. Where people have brought in doctrines that have made the gospel, where they deny the Trinity on the basis that it doesn't compute to them that God could be free and yet one. Or the Godhead of Christ... And they seek the rationalism that makes it comprehensible to them. And this has always been within the church. People taking spiritual things and rationalizing them down in a way that they can understand. Unlike in real life or life as we know it, it's the shallow water that holds the greater danger. It's the shallow water that holds the greater danger. The sharks don't like the deep where God lurks. Remember, in Genesis 3, the serpent was a creature of the land. And if we find ourselves being Christians for a minute and we are wading, still wading in the shallow water, in the milk that Paul describes in this particular chapter, if we're still wading in it and thinking this is enough, it's too scary going out there. Beware. 
The danger is in the shallow water. So what is their problem? Well, from the Greek mindset, the issue is all related to the resurrection. That's why they can't comprehend the now and the not yet. In the Greek mind, the afterlife doesn't exist in the way that the Bible explains it to exist. A bodily resurrection where we will be alive, where we will be able to enjoy the pleasures. In the Greek mind, the afterlife was a disembodied one. In other words, it was a place where our souls go up into the sky and we're floating around in the peace without the problems of the body because we will no longer have to worry about getting old. We won't have to worry about um, feeding the flesh anymore. We'll just be in that place where our souls will be released to just be who we are. And so for them, the bodily resurrection didn't make sense. So you might as well enjoy life now. So that when we are disembodied, we can enjoy heaven in that new style of pleasure. And so because of this, they were trying to get it now. So this is the reason why all the problems that you see in the Corinthians is ultimately addressed in chapter 15 by the resurrection. Paul is highlighting their issues. But it's chapter 15 is the real meat of the letter. It's because of the resurrection. You are struggling in all these other areas. And I guess if there's one thing I want us to walk away from today is that we will have a picture of the church being the eternal church. How do we prepare ourselves, equip ourselves, so that we will seamlessly step into eternity as the church of God? Hopefully when he explains this to them, they will connect the dots. And they will say, wow, okay, we were trying to live this all out now. But yet I've given no room for God to build for the future. Let's move on to chapter 4. So this is the chapter after chapter 3. And it now goes, and Paul now wants to clarify that as an apostle, he is subject to God's standard. In other words, them looking at him and saying that he is somebody, he is trying to defer them away from that and say, look, I am just a worker. To be big in human standards is no big deal. For you to be impressed with what I taught you is no big deal. Humans are easily pleased. If you want to see evidence of this, watch Britain's Got Talent. <laughs> where there is no talent, and not to say that these all everyone has a talent, but where people try to proclaim there is a talent and you're, you don't see anything there, 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because sentiment can fill in the blanks. And there'll always be someone on the panel to go, I kind of get it. <laughs> Even though there is nothing there. It's like the emperor's new clothes. It takes the Simon to tell them you're naked, you have nothing. <laughs> but we're easily pleased. We easily can be fooled into, fool people into thinking that we're something we're not. But Paul says, but God is the judge. And he is not so easily fooled. He is not fooled at all. <clears throat> he says this in, in, in 4 verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Don't act like the judge. Let God be our judge, whether we've done a good job. One of the things that he was also stating in, in chapter 4 is that how so much of what they were doing was without actually really examining their lives. They were living it up trying to use the gospel as a means to say, I've arrived in life and I'm, a, you know, I'm God's kid, so to speak. And he says that, don't you even realize that we don't even live good lives like you live? In other words, in Paul's time, it was the church that was rolling up in the big cars whilst he took the bus. The ministers were struggling. And yet this was even a clue that they had not yet cottoned on to the teaching the way that he did. Because it's in chapter 4 he reminds them that I don't live like you live. And I'm the teacher. You guys are living large and I'm struggling. We can run off with what we believe someone has taught us, not realizing that we haven't looked at their lives and what they are truly saying to us closely enough. And then we get to the heart of it in chapter 3. Now, given what we understand about where he's come from and where he's going to as he concludes his argument in those first four verses, first four chapters, he now brings us to the premise, the initial premise that he began with in chapter one about the divisions. It's in chapter three, he directs, he now attacks it at its heart. The divisions were not like, you know, every man for themselves. It was a sectarian style of division. In other words, people had moved into particular groups. They've got their favorite ministers now, or they've got their favorite church member, and they were trying to follow their particular style of ministry. He now couples this to his previous argument of teaching the spiritually aware that their inability to take on spiritual teaching is what has led them into this dark place. In other words, he starts by saying, I wanted to give you meat, but you could only take milk. 
what they've done is they've taken, as I said in my opening, they've taken a spiritual truth and tried to outwork it in a carnal way. In a human way, in an earthly way. Note that Paul doesn't take that responsibility upon himself. Oh, I failed as a teacher. I've failed to kind of get this through to you. He doesn't put the failure upon himself. He puts it upon them. And again, for, for those of us who demand simplicity, there is something here for you to understand. Like in conventional teaching, there is a work for the teacher to condescend, to take those things which we understand it's in complexity, to deliver it to you. But guess what? There is also a work for you to do to ascend and to try to reach to where we are trying to lead you. That's why the saying goes, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. There's no point trying to get people to put knowledge in your head if you're not striving to take that knowledge and run with it in the way it was really delivered. There is a spiritual work involved in listening. Everyone can hear me from a, a biological sense. You're hearing if it is working to the degree it should work. You will hear my voice. But it's not the sound waves you need to learn to hear. It's, it's that which, where I believe my words are coming from, which is the spirit of the word. Paul puts it on them. You were not ready. You were, you were just taking my words and running off with them with whatever ideas you have without really listening to me. Even Jesus says, be careful how you hear. It's not enough to just show up. It's not enough. The spirit may indeed be willing, but our flesh is weak. So it's worth taking notes. It's worth writing down some prayer points and saying, Lord, I want to try and understand that a bit better. I want to run with that. It's worth going the extra mile. It's also more reasonable to assume that right here at the beginning of chapter 3 that Paul is also making the contrast between his charisma and, and Apollos' charisma. That Apollos is actually in Corinth at this time when he's writing, teaching them, and, and obviously maybe even it's Apollos who's letting him know about the divisions. And that they have bought in to Apollos' charisma, the, the fact that he will appears to be more dynamic in teaching. 
And I know we're all adults here, and when I say we can all have our favorite teachers, right? The people that we can listen to endlessly, that are on our YouTube. You know, it's unhealthy to just be kind of like, like just loading up one sermon after another, right? I just want to make that. I, I, I don't want to assume that, but you know that's unhealthy. The same way you wouldn't kind of like eat like 15 burgers in a row. Because, I, because if you're doing that, you know you're not actually digesting any of that, right? You need to sit and park. Maybe there's some people that, again, are on levels where you really need to just probably take five minutes and just say, let me unpack that in some prayer. Pause, because that's what's called the art of listening to what they're actually trying to say. But we buy into the charisma, and it may be that Paulus has a style which obviously is more dynamic. And Acts 18.24 says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So that's what I'm basing that assumption on. That Paul, by contrast, says that he's not dynamic in delivering sermons. So what does he now say? Section of verse 5 to 9. The people's reaction to the workers he's now focusing on. And he now brings the illustration of a field. His idea here is that God is ultimately the owner and the sustainer of the field. And Paul highlights that he is merely a worker in God's field. And Apollos is likewise a worker in God's field. Let me give you an illustration that maybe helps us here to see what he's trying to say. Imagine, you know, for those of you who are old enough, imagine the days when um, door-to-door salesmen came around selling you um, vacuum cleaners. And imagine Paul or Apollos as such a seller. And say, if we put him in our modern age, they're coming around with the latest Dyson vacuum cleaner. The best suction you've ever had. Noiseless. A miracle. It's, it's, a, it's a leap ahead of any other vacuum cleaner. I guess as Dyson claims to be. But then the customer is more enamored with the sales speech of the salesman that they are going, you know what, just say that again. Just say it how you said it just now. Tell me that was just amazing. And then you realize that you as the salesman, they have no interest in the vacuum cleaner. And they now have no interest in Dyson, the one who's actually invented it. 
I just think your sales speech is amazing. The vacuum cleaner and Dyson is, are out of the picture. They're enamored with you. You're the big deal. And this is ultimately how the gospel and God gets crowded out the picture because we are following personalities. I just love the way he said that. I just love, the, I just love his spirit. I just love the way that he does that thing. That's the best illustration I could get about what's going on. We care nothing for the gospel, and we care nothing for God, though we will nod and say, well, we're impressed, but man, you're the salesman of the year. He then moves in 10 to 15 into an illustration of a building, a temple even. Now he's more focused, not on the relationship of the listeners to the workers. Now he's focused on the workers themselves, himself as, a, as, as an apostle, and of Apollos, obviously, as a fellow worker in evangelism. And, but now he's talking about how he, as an apostle, has to be very careful about how he builds. He's very aware that he has God as a judge. And as such that he wants to be very careful about how he builds upon the foundation of Christ. And so it is that we should be very careful about how we build. As I began, you know, we're, we are in a reconstruction phase of our ministry here. And for all of us involved, likewise, we need to be very careful how we build. Because it's upon the gospel, or it ought to be upon the gospel, on which we build. And one of the things I believe that we need to ask ourselves as we do as I'm doing here, go to the front to lead, or go together to make a decision about how we push the ministry forward into the future, is we need to ask the question is, will this last? Is this gold? You know, in the ancient ruins, and many, many a commentator note this, you know, why this illustration was, is so important, that when you go, when a, when a, I guess in the ancient world, or maybe even in the modern world, it's the same thing, isn't it? When a house burns down, there's certain things that never burn. They may melt, but they're still there. And in the old temples, when they were set alight and all the rest of it. It was the gold, the silver, the metals. They all endured. 
But the wood, the hay, the clay, they got consumed. They got consumed because they can't endure the fire. We have to be very careful that the things that we're enamored with, that we think are so important for the church, can actually survive into eternity. We need to be very mindful that is this thing that I'm so precious about, that I, I believe needs to be heard, that needs to be done, will it survive? And if you can't hold hand on heart that this will survive, that this is, I believe, something that the Lord wants to do, and when his kingdom comes, we shall continue to do it. then let's be prepared to let it go. Will it endure? Will it survive? As workers in God's building on his church, we cannot afford to be precious about things we're not sure the gospel has at its heart. Many things are useful, and Paul will go on to say that in this letter. But there are some things which are hills that we cannot die on and should not die on because we're not sure it will survive. There are many things that we will bring into the church, you know, that conventional wisdom out there will say this is a great thing in how we build churches or build organizations and again I don't want to deny those things because they can be important but remember again this is Paul pitting conventional wisdom against spiritual wisdom the way that we build the church and God's master plan had a man die his own son God himself on a cross in order to conquer. We have to come to a point where we believe that the strategies that we might employ may look weird to the world outside. That's not how you grow. And we have to also take that on board. In Acts 17, 6, it says this, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These have turned the world upside down, have come here too. The things that we do will turn the, up, the world upside down. But here is a little Jewish man coming in, causing all these Greeks in this major city to be in uproar. What's he doing that we're not doing? We should expect that we have the ability, like Paul, to go into a major city like Ephesus and cause the kind of ruckus. Why not here in London? Why can't we turn up 
London upside down through some, what the world will see as some weak, lame strategy. I leave that with you. 16 to 17, it says this, you are the temple of God, and this is the heart of what I want. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and you are part of that temple. But it comes with a warning. Do not destroy the temple of God. As you look at one another, you're the temple of God. This should make us sober about how we slander people, of how we talk about people. Because the words used here in the Greek, which may not necessarily translate well here, are talking about final judgment. If you are actively working against the church of God, now, this is not an organization. He's talking about the individual members. If you are actively working against someone who God has raised up, beware. Beware. Why do I believe this is important for us to remember? Well, I, I like teaching on, I haven't done so in a long while, well, not here anyways, the teaching of David. And these things I could very easily relate to the life of David. Why is it important that we change the way that we look and act towards one another? Well, I don't want you to turn there, but I want you to note it. First Samuel 25. It shows David meeting Abigail. Now, Abigail is Nabal's wife. Nabal has, has um, spoken against David, has, has turned his way. Maybe you can even say embarrassed him and sent him away. Wouldn't give him anything to eat. And then... David and his men strap on their swords to go and kill Nabal and his whole household. Abigail is told by one of the servants that they saw Nabal bad-mouthing some of David's men, and Abigail is smart enough to assume that danger is around the corner. And so she runs to meet David, and she says this, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lies of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. 
Oh, for my Lord, working salvation himself. Or for my Lord, working salvation himself. That Lord is David, she's referring to. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She's rebuking him. She's telling him that you're going to be the prince. The term prince, not king, because God was king over Israel. You're going to rule the people of God. And here you are, coming like a common thug, ready to defend your name. And wipe out my family. For what? For a foolish man. She's saying, let God defend you. Let God vindicate you. Let God show you who you are. So that one day when you sit in the kingdom, you can be guiltless for slaying innocent lives. When you look at the, the life of David, it's, it's almost like a kingdom within a kingdom. While Saul is actively tearing down the kingdom, David is becoming the new kingdom that God will raise up and establish like the, the kingdom of God. It's a picture of the church. It's a picture of David now represents what will soon be the kingdom. And as Saul is actively tearing down and killing off the priests, they're going and establishing. And they're going to David, and David's kingdom is growing. We're a picture of David's ragtag men preparing to rule and reign. One day. And how we act now matters. How we act now determines how that kingdom would look. And I say all this to say, can someone who is actively tearing down one another be in that kingdom? Because as far as Abigail is concerned and as far as Paul is concerned, that can't work. It cannot work. Let God vindicate you if you've been offended. Stand back. Take it. Let him vindicate you. A final section then reprises the theme of wisdom that dominates the first three chapters. Again, the contrast is always between the world, how the world views wise, which, remember, Paul is talking to a Greek audience. Greeks, as far as Athens are concerned, would consider themselves to be the bastions, the, the guardians, the custodians of wisdom, the wisdom tradition. We have Socrates. We have Aristotle. We have Plato. We don't go anywhere else to look for wisdom. We are the foundation of democracy. We are wise. And he is telling them, 
that God is only wise. This, is Paul, this in Paul's view is summed up in the cross, which by Greek standards will be foolishness. Why? Because Greeks were the ones who coined the slogan, might makes right. Might makes right basically means that if you can establish something, if you can put your foot on something and, and suppress it, then you make it right. If I can go into your home and take your goods and you can't do nothing about it, you know, think of the old warlords, all the rest of it. They come and they take your land and you're powerless to fight them. Then obviously, from their point of view, if I can come and take it and you can do nothing, then that makes it right. That was Greek wisdom. But Paul is summed up in the cross. Christ crucified does not look like a winning strategy in anyone's playbook, whether Greek or otherwise. But yet that is how God conquers the world. The cross alone should think about the things that we want to implement into the life of our church. We should not make conventional wisdom the final standard as to whether it's something that God wants to do. If somehow it can help us understand how the cross and the seemingly foolishness of it um, can accomplish great good, then maybe again, there may be something to a strategy that seems to be, as it were, backward thinking. But we cannot allow, you know, ten rules of, you know, of successful business people to be the only standard by which we govern ourselves. In closing, he now tells them that all is yours. He, he's encouraged them to have a bigger vision. He takes one of their slogans, all is yours. A famous Greek slogan. And he now turns it around and he says, likewise, as far as the kingdom is, is, is concerned, all is yours. Why limit yourself to the sectarian version of Christianity where you've got your particular people and your particular group and this is it. Let's just stay here. Why can't you just learn from Paul, learn from Apollos, learn from Peter, learn from whoever the Lord sends to you? Why narrow your vision? Why make it simply about one particular section of the gospel that you like? Why not make all of it yours? Why not embrace every teacher, whether you like their charisma or not? Why, if they have the gospel to present to you, why not? Why not listen to another spirit-filled believer and not assume that all wisdom comes through your point of view?
Why not give way that the God might go through somewhere else? Reminds me of the words of uh, Mordecai to Esther, isn't it? If you don't do it, maybe God will find, God will have to find some other way to save the Jews. It was not Esther or Bust. God will use whoever he will. The kingdom of God is bigger than the cultures. Even the cultures we're currently living in. It's bigger than the American culture that has dominated us in the West. It's even bigger than European culture and all the issues there in our current affairs. It's bigger than Chinese culture, which looks to be taking over the world over the next few decades. It's got to be bigger than those things because those kingdoms will pass away. If you've read Daniel, then you realize that all of those kingdoms will fade. And a new kingdom will come. In where, which has no end. Let's live for the kingdom that will at last all these other ones. Let's live for the bigger culture that will survive all these other cultures. This is, the temp this is the problem with the temptation of not seeing the kingdom to come and aiming for that. We will always be tempted to, to take what we hear from the gospel and try to fit it in to the culture we currently have and try to make it tame and fit into what it has here so that we can look cool. That we can look like we've got it all made. But that would be a mistake. Paul says that is too small for what God is doing and is about to do. We need a bigger vision. We need to build something that's eternal. If the, ark, if the church today is the ark of Noah's time, we need to build something that's going to survive into the new world. And no, when you think about that ark, Noah had to build it to survive, right? Let's build something that will survive. And let me end on this. In 1 Corinthians 2.9, going back that one chapter, this is, the, this is the grand vision that Paul wants you to see. He wants them to see. If they can just get over this whole idea of the resurrection not being what they think it is, he says, says no eye has seen. No ear has heard and no mind has imagined the things that God has prepared for those who love him. If there was ever a reminder that we need to get a bigger vision, there's Paul's encouragement to us there. Let's build for the new world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning, this afternoon, that you have brought us here to, again, be part of your church, to, again, the uh, called out ones, the ecclesia, the kahal, you know, that you have, we have assembled in this building. But, Father, we as individuals here, united by your spirit, have, are the church. We are those stones in which Jesus is the, core, the chief cornerstone. And here we are, Lord, 
Give us big visions today, dear Lord Father, to build for the future. Help us as Ecclesia to build strongly on that foundation that, that Jesus has laid and that Paul came and Apollos came and, and the numerous faithful Christian leaders over the generations have come and, and have built on their Lord God. Help us, dear Lord, as, as, as your church in this place for, for you, in your time, likewise build well. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here. Help us to transform ourselves. For as many who want to be mature, I pray that they will take the initiative to seek their Lord God, you in the complexity, so that you can become simple to them. Help us, dear Lord God, to be actively involved. Help us to be praying people, God, people who are realistically seeking how we can best serve your gospel how we can best preach it out there, how we can best preach it to ourselves day top by day so that, Father, there is nothing alone that which we live by other than the gospel and that I am saved by grace. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for what you're teaching us. Thank you for, for the Ecclesia, dear Lord God. May it survive, dear Lord God, into eternity. If you should tarry, dear Lord God, we want to pray for the future generations who will build. Maybe the young people here who may have heard my voice but, you know, can't comprehend, who may be the next tier, dear Lord God. We want to pray for them and maybe even their next door as well, dear Lord God. We just want to pray, dear Father, that they also will be able to catch that vision so that they and their generation can also build well. Thank you, Lord, for this thing you're doing. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.